Okay, let's do this. So this is not what the message is about, but I'm just so thankful. I think uh, place our thankfulness in that. Here's what we're going to look at today. We're looking at the, the, this is a series on anger. On Father's Day, we covered this idea of uh, what does it mean to be provoke our children to anger. Last week, we looked at the heart of anger. We looked at James chapter 4, the self-exalting, the selfish, sinful heart exalts itself. That's one of the reasons we struggle with anger. Um, we looked at the heart of anger, James chapter 4. Now today we're going to look at how to discern righteous from unrighteous anger. We talked a little bit about it, but I'm going to go a little bit further and look at the scriptures regarding this. So the title of the message, if you're looking for one, how to discern righteous from unrighteous anger. That's the title of the message. And if you're going to follow along with me in the Bible, you can start off. We're going to go through many different places. Start off with Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26. I have a couple of points that I want to point out to you today. Ephesians four twenty six, and what's interesting is as Paul has is now going into what it looks like to be in Christ. He in the first three chapters of Ephesians, he's really talked about the doctrinal perspective of what it's like to be in the Lord. Now he's, he's been talking about what how how your life has changed as a result of Jesus in you. You get verse 26 of Ephesians 4, and he says something interesting, quoting from Psalm 4-4, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. My first point today is the scriptures recognize righteous and unrighteous anger. We know plenty of places of unrighteous anger. We're going to look at that. But the scriptures actually recognize a type of righteous anger. When you look at this verse... Be angry and do not sin. If Paul's going to, under the inspiration of God, say, be angry and do not sin, that means there is a type of anger that is righteous and is not sinful. That's why when we say the word, you might hear me sometimes when we do this series about anger, I'll say righteous anger or unrighteous anger. Now, as we've said before, the difference really is this. Unrighteous anger is I'm angry about something done to me. And I have, I have, it's my kingdom. It's all about me. That's when we start getting into unrighteous anger. If when I start to feel the feelings and emotions and thoughts of anger, I ask myself, am I angry about something done to Nick or am I angry about something done to God or others, right? That's the question I'm asking myself foundationally. If the answer to that question is Nick, I'm going back to James chapter 4, right? I'm starting to look at what is, what is the cause of wars and rumors of wars in James chapter 4. Is it not your own sinful passions? I'm looking at my own sinful nature. I'm looking at my own selfishness, my own self-exaltation. Anybody in here know about self-exaltation? Anybody know about what that's like to do in life, right? If you don't know what it's like, I invite you to hang out with me for a day. You'll get a really good idea of what that looks like. Self-exaltation, that's where the heart of sinful anger starts. But then also, we have this idea of righteous anger. Now, most of our anger is unrighteous. Although there is a such thing as righteous, most of it is actually unrighteous. You know what's interesting? When you read about the word anger in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, I believe it's somewhere around 47 times you'll see the word anger being used in 42 of those times. The Hebrew word for anger in the Old Testament, 42 of those 47 times, it's referencing man, right? So we just, just as a 
side note, always be a little suspicious of how righteous your anger is. Although we're going to talk about it today from an offset. Dude, be, be very suspicious of how righteous our anger is. Be very suspicious. I mean, haven't we discovered that Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is deceitful, desperately wicked? Hebrews 3, 13 says sin is deceitful. So our own heart, sin, already tells us there's a lot of deceit going on. So the scriptures, I think, are, have a lot of warning that we need to be very careful about how righteous we are. Even when you think you're being righteous. Anybody ever read the book of Jonah? Anybody read the book of Jonah, right? Do you remember in the book of Jonah in chapter 4 where Jonah, where God is acknowledging that Jonah is angry and basically Jonah's angry because God's good, because God's, you know, God's as good as he said he is. And, and Jonah basically doesn't like the Assyrian Ninevites, right? They're the enemies of Israel. They're his enemies and he's a little racist at the same time, right? But yet God questions him and says, do you think your anger is righteous? Like, why are you angry, Jonah? So we need to be cautious and understand. I'm going to talk about righteous anger. We're going to look at the life of Jesus. We're going to try to understand what some prisms to look at to go, is my anger righteous? What does it look like to act righteous in anger? Because the Bible says, be angry and sin not. So what are, what are some, how do we look at that? We're going to look at that. But I do want to warn. I want to warn. I want to warn. We can't walk out from this message thinking, oh, I've got a lot of righteous anger. You know, chances are probably not. Right. Chances are you if if you're if you're ever wondering in whatever um, issue you're having with somebody and you're wondering, man, who's the bigger sinner here? You're going to get a lot of grace if you just go ahead and point to yourself. Right. If you go ahead and point to the log that's in your own eye before you take the toothpick out of someone else's, you'll always get God's grace. You'll be in a great place. I mean, first, doubt your own deceitful heart. Doubt the grip of sin and Satan in your soul. First, doubt that. So the scriptures, one, recognize righteous and unrighteous anger. It recognizes a righteous anger. Most, number two, of our anger is unrighteous anger. Number three, we'll look at this idea. What does righteous anger look like? What does righteous anger look like? So um, we've told you here in a little bit, we're going to have, we can't, I'm told we can't call it a bookstore. We've got to call it a resource center. Uh, but we're going to pretty soon, uh, we've, I've given some books that I've read that we're going to have in, uh, where we used to have the library. And um, Beth Rose is going to be maintaining that. I, I've given her some books, about 30 different books to read. Uh, you're thinking, like, I'm not going to read 30 of those books, Nick. I know. But we're going to have them in there. They're, going, they're covering a wide range of topics, books that I can recommend. And one of the books that you'll find when we start filling up this bookstore or resource center, and we're not making money off these books. This is just, I'm trying to provide you titles so that you have something trusted when you want to read about a subject matter. There's one book in there that, that is in the 30 that I've kind of given her to kind of initially purchase. Um, one is called Uprooting Anger, Uprooting Anger. And in chapter two of that book, I believe uh, one of the strongest outlines for questions to ask yourself, am, is my anger acting righteously, right? Three great questions. And, and here are the questions. Question one is this. Righteous anger, or three great points, I would say. Righteous anger reacts against actual sin. So if you think you're in a situation where, okay, 
I'm angry. Be angry and sin not. So first, am I angry about something done to myself? No, this really isn't about me. This seems to be about God, his glory, others. Okay. So the first, the first thing we're looking at is, is my anger at this moment? I'm, I'm thinking this may be righteous anger. It looks like I'm going that direction. Am I angry about actual sin? An actual violation of God's word, a violation of his will. Am I angry about something in that zone and area? Number two, is my righteous anger focuses on God, his kingdom, his rights, and his concerns, not on my kingdom, my rights, or my concerns. So that's another second thing we're kind of pointing out. Number three, when there's righteous anger, it's accompanied by other godly qualities, and it expresses itself in godly ways. So three things. When there is righteous anger, righteous anger reacts against actual sin, Righteous anger focuses, number two, on God and his kingdom, not on my kingdom. It focuses on God's kingdom, his rights, God's concerns, not on my kingdom, my rights, my concerns. And when anger is righteous, it's accompanied by other godly qualities, and it expresses itself in godly ways. So those are three kind of things to look at when we're thinking of, okay, Nick, understand, I've got sinful, I, I can easily be tempted for sinful anger. Now, what about other times when there are righteous anger? And and Nick, how do I process through that? What's a good template? And I think this, in in Uprooting Anger, chapter 2 of the book, um, I think Daniel Jones does a great job. Righteous anger reacts against actual sin. Righteous anger focuses on God, his kingdom, rights, concerns, not on me, my kingdom, my rights and concerns. By the way, I'm repeating this because I know several might be wanting to write this down. Righteous anger is accompanied by other godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways, right? So let's take a couple passages of Scripture and look at the life of Jesus and kind of go, do we see these three elements in, in how Jesus handled himself? And there's a lot of different passages we could look at, but I really just today want to focus on two passages. And I think because really I think they're some of the most misunderstood And I'd like to bring light to it because when we talk about the idea of anger, most people go right to these passages and go, hmm, right there. You say Jesus was like perfect and sinless, but I don't understand. How does that guy go flipping over tables, right? And like, you know, taking a whip out and around, you know, and just like going all, you know, John Wayne on people, right? I'm sorry. I didn't mention the holy word, did I? John Wayne. Okay. So like, I don't get it. This looks like sin. Well, let's look at it. First, let's go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. John chapter 2. <clears throat> By the way, do you know that Jesus cleansed the temple more than once? Um, more, there's, there's two clear times that we can see. Two clear times. Uh, I had one pastor tell me he thinks there was a third time. I haven't been able to figure that one out. But clearly, two times, Jesus cleansed the temple. At the beginning of his ministry and at the very end, he cleansed the temple. Right, And if you're wondering, like, man, did, did they not get the uh, hint the first time? Obviously not, right? So he, at the very beginning of his ministry, and then three years later, he does it again. John chapter 2, I want to give you, we're going to read this just so you have kind of an idea. Then here's what I want to do. I want to walk through these three ideas and apply them to the text. That righteous anger reacts against actual sin. Righteous anger focuses on God, his kingdom, and his rights. 
And righteous anger is accompanied by other godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways. I want you to see this in the life of Jesus. Now go to John chapter 2, verse 13. The wedding at Cana just happened. Jesus had just turned the water into wine. Um, it was probably just grape juice, all right? Verse 13. That was a jo- snarky joke. I guess y'all didn't get that one, right? Okay. That's what I was told initially. It was actually just grape juice that he turned it into, but... No, it was actually wine. Okay, verse 13. That's not part of the message. That's just me being snarky. All right, verse 13. And the Passover, this is John chapter 2, verse 13. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables. And he made a, a scourge of cords... He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remember what was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quote from Psalm 69.9. And the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us of your authority to do these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this sanctuary in three days. I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, It took 40 years to build the sanctuary. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So we have one passage here of John chapter 2 where Jesus cleanses the temple. Now a lot of people would look at this and go, Jesus lost it. Man, he... He lost it. He was out of control, berserk, just going crazy. Well, I want to tell you, that's actually not really true. Now, was Jesus angry in the moment? Absolutely. And did he have righteous anger? Absolutely. Let me show you first this. Righteous anger reacts against actual sin. Remember, that was one. So take a look at the text and you'll find a couple of things. Look in verse 16. And those who were selling the doves, Jesus said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So he says first, he's offended at what they're doing to the father. He's, 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 he's upset and angry with a righteous anger about what they're doing. Just so you understand, where they were doing this was called the court of the Gentiles. And the, the temple was actually supposed to be a place where God was worshipped, prayer was offered, and also... This was a place to basically witness to the Gentile heathens about what the one true God was like. But what had happened is the Jewish people, the high priests, the one in, in ancient antiquity, one of the names for this kind of area is called the core of the Gentiles, but is also called Ananias Bazaar, right? Ananias was the high priest. Everything that happened at the temple, the high priest would have to sign off on. So here's what happened. When you, the high priest in actually Jewish literature, the high priest could actually, among the Jews, he could actually declare an animal clean and ready for sacrifice, right? And, but instead, what Ananias had done is allowed these, uh, allowed these money changers and these people who were selling animals for big Passover festivals that basically you can sell these animals and we'll just consider them clean. But they were selling the animals at a, at a high rate. Because basically Jews from all over the area were coming in uh, for the Passover festival. So these people were taking advantage of people and spiking the price of animals for sacrifice. The other thing they were doing is 
you, there was certain money that your currency had to be changed over into a certain currency that could be accepted at the temple. And the money changes were charging an inflated rate. Now, they probably thought they were doing something that was very helpful, but Jesus comes on the scene and says, you've turned the temple into a bazaar. You've turned it into something that was never intended to be. This was meant to be a place of witnessing and prayer and talking about the one true God, witnessing to the Gentiles. But all we hear are animals and money clinging all around. You've turned it into something wicked. So Jesus says, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So he says, you can't do this anymore. Right? This is not right. So he's angry about actual sin. Now, verse 17, his disciples remember what was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So his disciples know what's going on. So there's actual sin that's going on. Now, the second thing is, righteous anger focuses on God, his kingdom, God's rights, concerns, not on my own kingdom, my own rights and concerns. So he's focused on God's kingdom. Notice that he does something here in verse 18. The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us of your authority for doing these things? Which, by the way, the Jews in this passage, who would have been the people to immediately talk to Jesus when he did this? Well, the high priest is over this area, but also there are temple guards who have great actual jurisdiction. Temple guards actually had the right by Rome to actually arrest you, even could put you to death for violating, violating the rules of the priest in the court of the Gentiles. So the ones that are questioning him were more than likely just the actual Jewish, actually the Jewish soldiers, the actual guards of the Temple Mount. Now notice, they don't get super, you know, kind of like, they don't arrest him or anything of that nature, which tells you something. If Jesus' activities were that out of line and erratic and out of complete, he was acting just like a complete berserk man, don't you think the Temple Guards would have arrested him? But no, what are they doing in the text? The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us that your authority for doing such things? So Jesus says, Destroy this sanctuary, and three days I will raise it up. Jesus was referencing the temple, but really he was referencing the true temple, which was himself. He basically was saying, There'll be a day where I'll die in three days, I'll resurrect. This temple will be brought to the ground someday, but actually I can raise it up in three days. He was actually speaking to them about the kingdom to come, about himself. He would, this is what he would do three years later. So what he was doing was he was focusing on God and his kingdom. He didn't, he didn't go in and start throwing accusations toward them. He just basically let them know, hey, I'm cleansing this temple to let you know there's going to come a true clean temple to come. And I'm going to let you know that destroy this temple in three days, it'll be raised up. They get confused about it. But what he's trying to plant actually the seed for, the understanding, is that I have a purpose. And my purpose has come to redeem. And I am the true temple. So Jesus is focusing his anger on God's kingdom, God's rights, God's concern, the right of redemption. That God has always meant for the temple in Jerusalem to point to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I am that guy. I am that guy. So the last is this. So we see that Jesus here, his anger reacts against actual sin. They turn God's God's house into a place of business. We see him focusing actually on God's kingdom, his rights, concerns. God, he points to the redemptive work that he was going to do. And number three, 
other godly qualities and he expresses itself in godly ways. Now you might be looking, let's go back over here to verse 15. And he made a scourge of cords and he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now this is where people go, aha. Now we see him losing control. First off, I want to tell you this. Has anybody ever been raised on a farm or like taking care of animals? Okay. So he makes a cord because that's how you're going to scatter the animals, right? He didn't make the cord to just go around whipping people. He made it to actually get the animals and whip the animals, right? That's how you get animals to move off, right? And now here's the deal. If you move the animals, who else do you move? All the people selling the animals, right? I mean, don't people who love their animals usually run after their animals, right? If you love your dog and your dog leaves the house, don't you run after your dog, right? Those of us that don't love our dogs probably don't, right? But that's just the difference. So here what he finds is this. He drives off the animals because Jesus has every right to do such a thing. He pulls, he turns over the tables. He is letting them know, I am the true temple. You have no right and jurisdiction to do this. This is not right. And here's the thing. The fact that they question him lets you know already they know it's wrong. Have you ever gotten on to somebody for doing wrong, but at the same time in your heart knew that you were a hypocrite because you did the same thing? So when these Jews had actually come in to question him, especially it would be the temple guards, they already were convicted and knew that this wasn't right. They, had t- they were doing something wrong. They were charging an inflated rate, selling off animals, you know that when basically when the people would come for the Passover, that was one of the pilgrim feasts that Jews would come to, is that they would actually consider Jerusalem extended past Jerusalem proper to the outlining villages because thousands of Jews would come in. And so all that kind of selling, if you were traveling, it'd be helpful to be able to buy an animal instead of having to transport an animal when you came to Jerusalem for the Passover. That'd be very helpful so you, but you could have done that outside the temple. You could have done that at a, at a way that was benevolent and helpful for people to come and worship the one true God. So Jesus, Jesus was telling them, like, this is not right. You've completely missed the purpose. When you look at when Solomon is, um, when they're celebrating the opening of the temple and the glory of God is coming, you can see Solomon's prayer. And Solomon's prayer is one that shows that this temple was meant to be a place of prayer and witness It wasn't that any longer. So Jesus comes in and cleanses it. And everything he does is right. Now, let me give you an application of this. If you as a parent and you have children, and your children are doing wrong, right? You as a parent, should you discipline them? Yes or no? Yeah, you should discipline them. And is that a right thing to do? Why? Why? Because you have authority there. Jesus' cleansing of temple was a right thing because he is the temple. He is the authority. He is the one true God. He is the one that gave the idea of the temple and the building of it. So we see that there's righteous anger. He acts against actual sin. He's focused on God's kingdom, not his own. And he's accomplishing it with other godly qualities. He's actually having a conversation with them. I mean, Jesus does it. When they come to ask him, where do you get this sign, this authority? 
You don't, you don't find him going over and like kicking a cat or kicking a dog or trying to just go or being so angry he can't have a conversation. No, he says, destroy the sanctuary in three days. I'll raise it up again. Now do this. Go over to Matthew chapter 21. Okay, so that's one incident. By the way, just if you want some help and hope today, Matthew 21 verse 12. You ever wonder, man, how many times has Jesus got to tell me to do something? Well, at least twice, right? I mean, like, the, he did it before. Three years later, he does it again. I was chuckling to myself this week, wondering, were some of these the same people that were there three years before? And if they were, did they scatter and kind of get out of there a lot quicker? I mean, I'm just wondering, right? Just wondering what's going on in the background. So we see here, I mean, I, I'm fairly confident that if they were still doing it three years later, and Jesus is going a lot of places, that wasn't the only time he's, transversing the temple mount i wonder if there were other times when he he might have been about his business doing something else and decided not to address him and they were just thinking okay is he about to turn left boys if he turns left remember how hard it was to find all of our coins i don't know about you but if you if you ever took a big stack of money and just thrown it into a big crowd do you think you're going to get all those dollars back it's wonder i wonder now take a look at matthew 21 and verse 12 we have another time that he cleanses the temple. This is at the very end. He's, he's already had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We're going into the Passion Week. And it says in verse 12, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Sound familiar? And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. He's quoting from Isaiah 56, verse 7. But you are making it a den of robbers. He's now quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the marvelous things which he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And he said to him, do you hear these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Now, it's interesting. If you look over at Mark chapter 11, I just want to show you one thing. Mark actually chronicles the same story, the same uh, time. But yet Mark gives us a couple of details that Matthew doesn't tell us about. Now, Mark chapter 11 and verse 15 Mark chapter 11 and verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, overturned the table of money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he was not permitting anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Just how far, he not only drives them out, but he says, no one's going to use this as an interstate kind of highway here. You're not walking across here with this kind of stuff. That's how far I'm jealous for the Lord's house. Verse 17. And he began to teach and preach, say to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. That's what Matthew says. But notice, he goes and quotes something further that Matthew doesn't chronicle, For all the nations, right? He goes with the further quoting, For all the nations. But you've made it a den of robbers. Now go back to Matthew 21. A couple things I want to point out to you. 
How do we see righteous anger here? Jesus reacts against, three years later, actual sin, right? When you go to Matthew 21, you find that he reacts against it. He says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He's quoting from Isaiah 56, 7, and you're making it a den of robbers. So he's actual sin. He's quoting scripture. He's saying, and by the way, this wasn't the first time. He, we know he had already done it three years before. And that thing three years before, that wasn't a light thing that he did. That was a big thing. In fact, when it came time to prosecute him, they were prosecuting him. One of the kangaroo courts kind of things was he said he could destroy the temple and build it in three days, right? So it was still a big event in their eyes and minds. So he says, no, this, is what, this isn't what God wants. Now, when you look at Isaiah 56 verse 7, it's discussing the glory of God even coming for the Gentiles, for all the nations. And so there's a point that he's making. He's saying, like, this house of prayer, this, this, is, this is meant to show what the one true God is like. It's not meant to be a bazaar. But you're making it a den of robbers. When you read Jeremiah 7, 11, it's, it's Jeremiah speaking to Judah, who is soon to go into Babylonian captivity. But Judah, basically Judah is saying to itself, we're going to hunker down at the temple and we're going to hunker down at the gates and Babylon's not going to be able to come and get us because we belong to God. And Jeremiah's trying to let him know and say, hey, you may belong to God, but you've broken his commandments. And he told you in the Mosaic law, if you disobey the Mosaic law, you would go into exile. You're not as safe. Just because you walk around using the superstitious word Yahweh for yourself doesn't mean that God's actually going to protect you. You're up to wrong. You're no good. You're killing your kids. You're committing murder. You're violating all his commandments. Just because you say you love him, but you break his commandments doesn't mean you're protected, right? So that's he's quoting that from Jeremiah 7, particularly verse 11. And he says, you've made this a den of robbers. Basically saying, you, you guys are a bunch of robbers and you're hiding out, but really you're guilty of everything that you're doing. That's what you've made this temple area. Now, Jesus, we see then, is actually reacting against actual sin. He sees biblical violation here. Number two, we see Jesus, his anger focuses on God and his kingdom. He says, he quotes from scripture, right? He's focusing on God's kingdom. And he has righteous anger is accompanied by other godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways. Now remember, in John 2, Jesus got them out of the temple. Then he began to tell them about the wonderful good news that he would be the true temple, right? He starts to plant that idea. He starts to plant the gospel message. Here he does something interesting. Which, by the way, just so you understand, he wasn't out of control in this instance. Why? Because look what happens in verse 14. Here's some of the... Godly qualities expressing itself in godly ways. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them, right? So if you're red-faced, out of control, irrational, blowing your top, you don't really take time and heal people, right? You find in Mark's account that he's not even letting people like, like, like do the commerce of walking things through the temple anymore. Why? Because he's trying to create a clear pathway that those who need Jesus can get him. Which, of course, remember, all this is happening. Jesus is at the earthly temple, and Jesus ultimately is painting a picture of the one true temple, which is himself, and the one true temple of God people that he was going to build, the church of God. Notice in verse 15, 
he's speaking to the chief priests and then he quotes scripture again to the chief priests and says, have you not heard out of the mouth of babes and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? He's basically saying, listen, like what, what the prophets prophesied about, I'm that guy, I'm here. And you can hear these people calling out to me. You could hear them calling out Hosanna. You could hear them the day before in the triumphal entry. Listen, the Messiah is here, right? The king's here. So he is doing other godly qualities and expressing itself in godly ways. He's healing the sick, the sick, the blind. I mean, he's showing what the kingdom is like as a zero tolerance policy for sickness and disease. I mean, that's what's going to be great about glory. There's no sickness. There's no disease. So here's what we see just with Jesus and probably the two most controversial. I would say he gets accused of being sinfully angry in these two instances. That's absolutely not the case. Everything he did was right. It was righteous. He should. Why is that? Because in these two instances, we find Jesus has righteous anger against actual sin. Jesus' anger is focused on God, God's kingdom, God's right and God's concerns. And Jesus is, has righteous anger that Jesus has is accompanied with other godly qualities and it expresses itself in godly ways. That's what righteous anger looks like. What's interesting, do you know that you could be, you could, like for instance, you could, okay, you see that something's going on with your children. I'm just using discipline as it's an easy example. And you go, wait a minute, I've got to correct that for the glory of God and the good of my child. I have to correct that. Then you're on the right track for righteous anger, right? And then, but though in mid-stride, right, in mid-stride, you can start getting sinful in it where you go, I am just so disgusted that they have inconvenienced me at this moment, right? Then what's happened? You're crossing over. It's personal. It's really about you. So what God wants us to be is this kind of life where life isn't about exalting ourselves. Life is actually about exalting God. And everything we do from the discipline of our kids to talking to someone who maybe, who maybe there's a, a problem or issue in in life. For instance... You know that sometimes, like I've heard this sometimes, where someone says, okay, wait a minute, Nick, the Bible says in Matthew 18 that when a one and one person, they have a problem with each other, they should go to each other and get this solved. And, man, that's a biblical thing to do. And we'd all say yes and amen to that, right? But I'll find is this. So there's an offense somewhere. One goes to the other person, but their reason for going to the other person is, Let me tell you how bad you are. And unless you agree with me in this moment, all bets are off and our relationship is gone. When really that is unrighteous anger. What does righteous anger looks like? Hey, I'm going to restore this because this glorifies God. I'm going to this person because I want to bring glory to God, not glory to myself. And if we're bringing glory to God in the moment, if if your thoughts get rejected, you don't rage in return. Have you ever went to somebody and tried to solve an issue? And as you talk to them, they rejected what you had to say. And then instantly you just kind of flipped the switch and kind of lashed out and got wrathful back. None of us know anything about that, right? I know. We know nothing. I'm talking to myself up here. I get it. In that moment, that showed that the motives weren't exactly pure. That you might have initially gone in for, okay, for the glory of God, I can't let this relationship fragment I've got to go talk to them. But they rejected what you had to say, and you instantly got prickly. That lets you know that, wait a minute, 
it still was. I didn't have godly responses. I didn't have godly, I didn't express myself in a godly way. So it might have been an initial great thing. I see actual sin. I'm trying to confront it. I'm concerned about God's kingdom, but I acted sinful to go about and get it. I'll give you an example. Years ago, um, there were, this is years ago in the 80s, there were some abortion clinics that Christians were, um, you know, doing protests at. And, and I wouldn't call these people Christian. There were some people that flew under the banner of Christian, but they would start to actually try to attack people that were coming to these clinics and doing all sorts of dubious things. And, and then, you know, what would that be? That would be, initially, it's a good thing. You're trying to protect life. That's for the glory of God and good at others. But then you start acting sinful as a part of it. You're no longer actually doing God's work. When anger is righteous, it reacts against actual sin. It focuses on God and his kingdom, God's rights, God's concerns, not my own kingdom, rights or concerns. Man, I cannot tell you how much it's really mostly about our kingdom. And number three, it's accompanied by godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways. Let me tell you this. When, when we are actually exercising righteous anger, we will always be in self-control. That's a fruit of the Spirit. It's part of the package. There will be love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That big fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, that'll all be there when we're actually doing righteous anger. And listen, there should be times where we do this. If, if there's a relationship that's fragmented between us and another believer, there should be righteous anger enough for the glory of God to restore that relationship. If there's, if, if, if there's something that's broken down life, I mean, like, you should intercede. If you've got another brother in Christ or sister in Christ who's going in a direction that's going to be bad for them and their walk with the Lord and their family, we should definitely have a righteous anger and intercede. We just can't make it about ourselves. And you'll know it because when it's about ourselves, we get prickly. Now we'll end with this. 1 Peter chapter 2. Are you all still with me? Are you all okay? Happy July 4th. All right. 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to end with this question, and then we're going to take communion together. I know the question we're all asking, because it's the question I'm asking. Okay, 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 Nick, I get it, I get it, right? I know the difference, unrighteous anger, righteous anger, what righteous anger looks like, I get it, Nick. But here's the next question. Nick, what do I do then when something happens and I am personally offended and I'm just hurt and I know it's wrong I know that for me to even address it I'm not going to be doing anything righteous with it I get it Nick I get it most of the time we're fallen sinners we need Jesus I get it but I'm personally offended it's hurt and what do I do with that because I know if I react I'm going to sin I know it's about my kingdom my feelings are hurt Nick, what do I do with that? Anybody asking that question? Yes? Yes, we all are. Right? If, if you're not, then I expect before the end of this me- message, you're going to be, you know, like Enoch and like walk with God and just like disappear into glory, right? Just, just so close to Jesus. You can just, just got more hanging in heaven. Just step on over. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 25. When this happens, here's what I'll tell you for my own soul that I do. I think it's good. It's good, biblical, honest. 
It's a wonderful chance to savor the Savior. To savor the Savior. When that happens, what an opportunity. What an opportunity. Man, to fight against your own sin, to to return good for evil, what an opportunity. What an opportunity to see your own sin and see the graciousness. What an opportunity to be like Jesus. Look in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. So what do you do when you're personally offended? There's, you got no pathway. What do I do? You do this. For to you this has been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So, you may be called to suffer in a way that makes you want to savor the Savior. So, you've been called. This is an example. Look at Jesus, verse 22. Just Jesus, who did no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who being reviled was not reviled in return. While suffering... He uttered no threat. So people say, so Dick, what do I do when someone hurts me and I did nothing to them? I'm just, but I'm, I'm offended. It, it really did hurt my kingdom. It hurt me. But, but I, like, what do I do at that moment? And there's, not, there's no recourse. There's nothing I can do. It's a chance to savor the Savior. It's a chance to being reviled and not reviled in return. Look at verse 23. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds, we were healed. And you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. What happens in verse 21 through 25? It's a chance to savor the Savior. It's a chance to go, I am hurt and offended. And this person doesn't even have ears. Like, they won't even listen to me. I mean, I got these family members that I, I try a gentle appeal, and they won't even have a conversation with me. This person won't even pick up the phone. And I did nothing to this person. It was a misunderstanding, and I'm hurt. What do I do? What an opportunity. Being reviled, he didn't revile. I mean, Jesus says, you're called. You, there might be times in life where this happens, and you have an opportunity to suffer for righteousness' sake. Make sure that in the bottom of your soul... What an opportunity to commit yourself to him who judges righteously. God will take care of that person. You can take them off your hook and you can put them on God's hook. You can forgive from the heart. You can say, what an opportunity this is, Jesus. This makes me love you even more. Adore you even more. What an opportunity to fight against sin, love you. Y'all see the savor the Savior moment. Would you stand to your feet and we're going to sing a great song, His Mercy is More. That's really what that text gives you. And what a chance to savor him as we sing. We're going to sing this song. We're going to pass out the Lord's Supper. Have a time of savoring the Savior. And maybe you have been hurt by somebody. And maybe there's no, there's no way to actually practice the, any of the elements of righteous anger. But actually you can practice righteousness in the soul. You can suffer well. Can we go to him? Father... If there's someone who is not a follower of you, um, may just drawing the gospel message, the talk of it today, may be their day. May they come to the baptism waters. May they follow you in believer's baptism. And for the rest of us, we, we cer- certainly need your help. We are 
so suspicious of our own sinful nature. But we are fully convinced of your nature. What an opportunity. God, let us take the moments of unjust reviling towards us. Let it be a time to love you even more. Guard us as we try to sift through life and figure out when when to actually actually practice righteous anger in a godly glorifying way with no pride or self-pity or self-exaltation, but for your glory and the good of others. Help us. We need your help. This is a difficult one. And God's people said, amen. Let's sing together and then we'll take the Lord's Supper.